This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 31, verses 1 through 7. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadad, and Malachishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through it, through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his sword-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The word of the Lord. The king is dead. For so many weeks now, we have been walking through 1 Samuel, hearing about Saul and David and their conflicts and their victories. And now, the king is dead. Well, what a way to start Father's Day off in a warm, cheerful way. I'd like to tell you a story that may be familiar to some of you. There was a married couple with a young son. And he was a wealthy philanthropist. His wife was a physician. And they were taking their son to see a show. It was a night out. And they were taking a shortcut home through a dark alley. And an evildoer came forward and demanded her pearls and his money. But that wasn't enough. He ended up taking the lives of this couple as the terrified little boy watched on. How many of you know who I'm talking about at this point? Yes. No? Bruce Wayne at this point. (laughs) So Bruce Wayne experienced this incredible trauma, and it marked him, and it marked the decisions he made as he was growing up, as we all know the great literature behind the fable of Bruce Wayne. And it changed him. It changed him to be a very specific sort of man. He was focused on justice, which isn't a bad thing in and of itself. But that focus on justice had been twisted by his bitterness and anger to this unknown assailant who took the lives of his parents. And for those of you who know the story of Batman, you know that it's safe to say Bruce Wayne was not a cheerful figure. He was a deeply tortured soul. And It's Father's Day, so it would be remiss of me not to mention Dick Grayson, Tim Drake, Jason Todd, these young men that he adopted and crafted to be his fellow vigilantes. Again, Bruce Wayne, a superhero according to DC, but not a happy man, a man of questionable character, a man who had been defined by a pain that he could not forgive a bitterness that had twisted his heart. Now, 
all of us may not have experienced the same trauma Bruce did as a young man, but we've all had those moments. We've had those moments where someone or something happens that takes our heart and twists it. And resentment starts to build. And the idea of forgiveness moves further and further away. And if that poison that we're drinking is never addressed, it changes us. It changes us into people who don't represent the faithfulness of God, who don't project the image of Christ in their life, rather angry, unforgiving, cynical, bitter people. And I think it's safe to say even the most cynical of us don't want to be that. So this morning as we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to ask the question, what do we do? What do we do when we begin to feel our hearts twisting towards bitterness and unforgiveness? And in the story of the death of Saul and how David receives the news, we're going to see two different things. We're going to learn from David an attitude, an attitude of the heart that we should embrace. And we're also going to see David model for us something that we can begin to do even this morning. So at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31, as we just heard Zach read, we heard the death of Saul. It was definitive. And Saul, he knew his enemy. The reason why he asked his armor bearer to put him to death was he knew what the enemy would do if they got their hands on him. A fate worse than death would be awaiting him. He was already mortally wounded. So he ended his life. The conflict between David and Saul has come to an ugly end. And we pick up in 2 Samuel. And I think it's important that I mention the chapter divisions in Scripture and those little bold headings, those aren't inspired. Chapters and verses are an invention. And here, with First and Second Samuel, we have an even bigger invention. This is the same book. This was one book. I can just picture at some point in history, the editor was going, you know, Saul dies here, and now David's the king, so we're just going to divide it right there to make it more manageable. But this was one book, so we're flowing straight from the death of Saul to how David receives the news. So let's take a look. Chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Malachites and stayed at Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man with torn clothes and dust on his head came from Saul's camp. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. So right away, David knew about this battle that Saul was a part of. He couldn't be a part of it, but he knew what was going down, but he did not yet know the results. And here comes this man. Running, tired, clothes ripped, his head marking all the signs of grief. So David has a pretty good idea what he's about to hear. David asked him, where have you come from? He replied to him, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What was the outcome? Tell me, David asked him. The troops fled from the battle, he answered. Many of the troops have fallen and are dead. Also, Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. David asked the young man who had brought him this report, How do you know that Saul 
and his son Jonathan are dead. Well, I, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa, he replied. So I spoke against cynicism a second ago, but I'm cynical about what I'm hearing here. I just happen to be on Mount Gilboa. In a minute, we're going to see what this guy's motivations are, but he happened to be on Mount Gilboa in the same way that Ternardier in Les Miserables happens to be at the sites of battles that have been ended so that they can loot and plunder the bodies for their own purposes. I just happened to be at this battle. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. Okay, that's a good detail. David hears that, and if you remember from 1 Samuel, Saul was attached to that spear. He had that spear with him everywhere. So that's a good detail that he brings out. At that very moment, the chariots and the cavalry were closing in on him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me. So I answered, I'm at your service. He asked me, who are you? I told him, I'm an Amalekite. That should be raising some red flags already. Then he begged me, stand over me and kill me, for I am mortally wounded, but my life still lingers. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he couldn't survive. I took the crown that was on his head and the armband that was on his arm, and I've brought them here to my Lord. Okay. So this guy has just given us a story in 2 Samuel 1 that's very different than what we just heard Zach read in 1 Samuel. So what's the story? Is a part of the text wrong? What's going on here? Well, there's nothing explicit in the text that says, and this Amalekite was lying. But there are a lot of markers that would seem to suggest that he is lying. And so he has an opportunity. He comes across the king as he's looting these bodies, and he takes the crown, and he takes this armband, and he thinks, David has been hunted and chased by Saul for so long, and if I come and bring these things and let him know the king is dead, he is going to reward me. This is going to be my payday. Just like those who are scavenging the battle, seeking for opportunity, Here is this vulture doing the same thing. So David hears the news, verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and all the men with him did the same. They mourned, they wept, they fasted. Now wait a second. Would you say that Saul's relationship with David and David's relationship with Saul was one of affection and support and camaraderie? Saul was chucking spears at David's head. He was putting hits out on his life. David was fleeing from this king who was threatened by David and wanted to end David. So this news, the Amalekite was right. The news should have been, wait, are you serious? Saul is dead? Oh, guys, let's, let's kill the fatted calf and have a party. That's what you would expect, that the persecution, the terror is over, but what does he do? He rips his garments, he and his men, and they weep. They mourn. How do we think of our enemies? We may not have people chucking spears at our heads. 
We may not be a tortured superhero trying to undo a terrible wrong. But we have those that for whatever reason in our heart we hold something. A grudge, a resentment, unforgiveness. How do we think of those who have wronged us? Would we celebrate at their misfortune? Or, like David, might we recognize, just as Saul was the anointed king of Israel and worthy of respect, that the men and women with whom we have issue are created in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect? Pat Robertson passed away uh, this past week, and I saw on the internet what the internet does. Those who were grieving the death of Pat Robertson and those who were celebrating the death of Pat Robertson. I saw believers writing things that were so callous about him. Regardless of your opinions on his positions and his legacy, he was a man created in God's image and death is a constant reminder, reminder that things are not the way they're supposed to be. We should be moved to grieve as David and his men did. So they mourned, wept, and fasted until the evening for those who died by the sword. For Saul, his son Jonathan, the Lord's people, and the house of Israel. David inquired of the young man who had brought him the report, Where are you from? I'm the son of a resident alien, he said. I'm an Amalekite. So this means that he wasn't one of the Amalekites that the people of Israel had been tasked to wipe out. He wasn't one of those soldiers from the Amalekites that were a threat to the nation of Israel. He was the son of a resident alien. So his father, an Amalekite, came to Israel and is no longer a stranger but a resident with the people of Israel. And this is his son. So this young man grew up under the authority of King Saul in the nation of Israel as a first-generation Amalekite. So he knows, and he is responsible to submit to the rule of King Saul. David questioned him. How is it then that you were not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David summoned one of his servants and said, Come here and kill him. The servant struck him and he died. Well, this maybe seems a little severe. But the covenant people of God had been given a mission. And when we look at Deuteronomy chapter 25, God explicitly says what the Israelites are to do to the Amalekites because of their wickedness. There was a mandate that they should not live. And here is an Amalekite who confesses to striking down the Lord's anointed. No one is to strike down the king whom God appointed other than God himself. So even though we, I believe, that this man was lying, that he was giving a false narrative of what happened, what he confessed to is taking a life that he had no right to take. And David goes on and elaborates on this by saying, your blood be on your own head. You brought a crown so I could put it on my head, 
but your blood is on your head. With your own mouth, you have testified, saying, I have put the Lord's anointed to death. To slay the Lord's anointed in Israel is the same as denying the authority of Yahweh himself. So this Amalekite, thinking, I'm going to be rewarded for ending Saul, instead faces justice for taking matters into his own hands or being a deceitful Amalekite. Whichever one, the punishment has been doled out. Then David Verse 17, chanted this lament over Saul and his son Jonathan. And he ordered that the Judahites be taught the song of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. Some of you are thinking, okay, I, uh, I've studied my Bible. I haven't memorized the whole thing, but I'm fairly familiar with the table of contents. And I don't know about a book of Jahar. What is that? Well, it's a manuscript that was collected wisdom writings from Israel and other ancient Near East cultures, and the song of the bow was recorded as one of them. So this song, this lament that David penned was considered to be such a height of expression of poetry and beauty that it made it into this edited volume of incredible poems, if you want to think of it that way. So this song became well-known. And if I could just be a nerd for a second, like the Bruce Wayne illustration wasn't nerdy enough, the Hebrew of this, this lament is absolutely gorgeous. It's beautiful. And we're going to look at this lament, but I want to go back and reiterate what David is doing here that is so countercultural. He is honoring the death of his persecutor. He is weeping and lamenting the death of the one who needed to be taken out of the way so David could assume the throne. And it was sincere. Somehow, this man embodied what it looks like to love even those who are persecuting. The past several years have been very polarizing in our nation. And brother has turned against brother, mother against daughter, father against son over things that are inconsequential in the big picture. But relationships have been shattered. I look at this and I think there is no division so great that the work of the Holy Spirit through us in humility can't mend. That we can love those with whom we take issue. We can receive people charitably. We don't celebrate their downfall. But don't we? On 75, when you are obeying all the rules of the road and driving appropriately, and that guy cuts in front of you and runs off after brake checking you, and then two minutes later, you see him pulled over on the side of the road with the police car right behind him, don't you kind of go, <laughs> We shouldn't delight in... Well, that's justice. That's fine. But... <laughs> We shouldn't delight in the misfortune of others. We want to. There's a part of us, that, that heart twisting towards bitterness that delights in that. And so I suggest that we take this example from David, and when we sense that smirk, when we sense that, oh, you had it coming, that twisting of the heart towards bitter, bitterness, let's check it now before it takes root and we become the negative, worrisome, 
heavy-hearted, uncompassionate men and women that we could become if we don't submit ourselves to the Spirit. If David can weep for Saul, anything, anything can be done. So I said there was something that we can learn from David, not just an attitude of the heart, but something that we can do. So let's look at this lament. The splendor of Israel lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Some of your translations maybe instead of splendor have beauty or glory. And then another translation might have the word gazelle. Well, what do we make of that? I think this incredible poet is using a double entendre. The gazelle, this beautiful animal, this noble beast has been slain. But also in Saul and Jonathan, the glory of Israel the anointed of the Lord, how the mighty have fallen. Do not tell it in Gath. Don't announce it in the marketplaces of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, and the daughters of the uncircumcised will celebrate. Okay, so where where is Ashkelon? Where is Gath? What is he getting at here? Well, when we hear uncircumcised, what we need to hear is people who are not the covenant people of God. Those who are not Israel. And Gath, Ascalon, cities that were the Philistines, that they held. So don't go celebrating. Don't don't let it be said there. I don't want these people to celebrate the death of Saul. No one should celebrate the death of Saul. Keep this news from them. Don't let it come to their ears. Mountains of Gilboa, this is where the battle took place. This is where Saul and Jonathan and and Saul's other sons died. Mountains of Gilboa, let no dew or rain be on you, or fields of offering. Now that's a smoothing out of some rough Hebrew. So I mentioned it's beautiful. This poem is beautiful. The Hebrew is elegant. Yet here, let me, let me read to you the rough literal translation of what's in the text. Mountains of, in the Gilboa, no dew No rain upon you and fields of offerings. There's not a single verb in it. And I don't know because I was not there, but when I look at the rest of this lament and I look at the rest of David's writings, he's not one to set aside grammar. In this, as he's choking back, as he's mourning, as he's lamenting, I, I, in my mind's eye, imagine Mountains of, in the Gilboa, no dew, no rains. He is emotionally, can't put the words together, and he's just cursing. He's just putting out the curse against Gilboa, this place, as if it's the mountain's fault where the king and his sons die. It's fraught with emotion. This is not a lament that he's submitting to the Grammys for their consideration. This is a lament screaming out of his heart. For there... Gilboa. For there, the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul, no longer anointed with oil. I've heard it said that this line, the shield of Saul, no longer anointed with oil, was a way that the author David is saying, King Saul is no longer the anointed of God. I am. He is no longer anointed with oil. That's not it. 
The shield, the shield of Saul was made of leather. And this is something we know from descriptions of the armaments and our knowledge of the ancient Near East. And they oiled their shields. And the purpose of oiling their shields was, one, to keep the leather healthy. It also caused strikes to glance off of the shield. And it was something that you took care of. Your shield was your life. So you anointed it with oil. So now he's giving us this word picture. This shield, just like Saul's spear, these were his tools. These were his instruments. No longer is it being cared for. That shield is lying in the dust, dry and deserted, dejected, as is the king himself. They're gone. They've been defiled by death. Verse 22. Jonathan's bow never retreated. Saul's sword never returned unstained. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, Saul and Jonathan loved and delightful. They were not parted in life or in death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. This is a eulogy. He is speaking well of the dead. He's honoring their military prowess, their abilities. And then unlike what he said about not telling it in Gath, in verse 24, daughters of Israel, weep for Saul. He who clothed you in scarlet with luxurious things, who decked your garments with gold ornaments, how the mighty have fallen in the thick of battle. It's not that King Saul went to the fabric store and to the jewelry booths in the marketplace and got all of these things and gave it to the daughters of Israel. But despite the many failures of King Saul in his reign that we've heard about these past several weeks, economic prosperity came to Israel. His military conquests brought prosperity to the nation. He was successful in this way. He provided for the people. Verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in the thick of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. This should throw us back to verse 19. The splendor of Israel lies slain on your heights. Jonathan, Jonathan, the splendor, the beauty of Israel lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you. Jonathan, my brother, you were such a friend to me. Your love for me was more wondrous than the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. When I first started studying this text and I got to this ending where he is grieving the loss of his closest friend, but okay, the application of this sermon is going to be godly spiritual friendship. That's not the focus of the sermon, but I don't want us to miss the relationship that the king, or that David had with Jonathan. And what, what is this? You, your love to me was more special than that of the love of any woman. When we read the text, we do so from a position of disadvantage. 
I don't think very many of us, even the oldest among us in this room, uh, were tooling around in the ancient Near East and were familiar with the customs and practices of the people of the day. Marriage then, in some ways, is similar to marriage now, but in other ways, very different. Uh, marriage in the ancient Near East, in Israel, they took place primarily for the benefit of the tribe. It wasn't because my, my heart is yearning for my bride. It was, this is a marriage that will be beneficial to all of us. These marriages, these families coming together, these relationships, to increase, to, <clears throat> to increase the size and strength of the social structure of Israel. So prosperity and strategy was the main thought behind marriage. And then, then once you were married, pardon my throat, <clears throat> once they were married, they would share. They would share parenting. They would share household responsibilities. But the man's wife was not viewed as his best friend, as a confidant, as a peer. That was reserved for other relationships. Jonathan, for David, was the peer, the friend, and confident that no wife could ever be in Israel for him. I am so thankful that today I can look at my wife and she is my best friend. She is my peer. She is my confidant. Things have changed. But when we read the text, let's take our views of marriage out and think what were the views there. David in Jonathan had found the one, the one who he could be truly himself with, who he could weep with, who he could listen to, who he could trust. And Jonathan's death left a gaping hole in David's soul. This lament is beautiful. This lament is powerful. What does that have to do with us? Well, as Christians, particularly Christians in our tradition, we emphasize something, rightly so. We are people of the resurrection. We are people marked, changed, and driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we are people who are marked by creed and confession, by joy. Because Jesus dying on the cross was not the end of the gospel. He rose again from the dead. And our hope is in him. And that when he comes again, we know that death is not the last word. That we will be made whole once again. And we will live with him forever into eternity. Our hope is one that's marked by joy. But something can happen when we focus so much on the joy. We focus so much on the hope that we lose sight of the now. Right now, the hope that I have encourages me, shapes me, drives me. But the right now is not a picture of hope. The right now is not a picture of perfect peace and perfect joy. Can I get an amen? Am I alone in this? Right now is not easy. Things are not now as they are meant to be. And I have hope, and a certain hope. In fact, a knowledge that one day things will be as they're meant to be. But I live here right now with you. And men and women, 
In this book, in this text that we just read, David gave us a model of a gift that we often lose in the church. We celebrate. We sing praises. Do we lament? Do we take the time to lament the things that are not as they should be? That relationship that I mentioned in the illustration at the beginning of this message, that relationship that is not what it should be because there's something in your heart that has turned you in bitterness away from that person, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We should lament that. And from that lament, pray for healing, pray for restoration, pray that our hearts would become like the heart of Christ in Philippians 2, that we would humble ourselves. What does lament look like? So in these final moments, I want to try something, and then I'm going to give you a homework assignment. It's a great way to have my first sermon at TFC, giving homework from the pulpit. I want you to think back over the past five years. I want you to take a moment and think about someone that you've lost. All of us have lost someone, either to death or to distance or to time. Let's take a moment and remember and lament quietly in our hearts that which is not as it should be. Let's just take a moment. Let's, let's shift the category a little bit. Yes, death is the enemy. Death is something that we should lament. It is the biggest reminder to me of our hope because there will come a day when death is no more. So death should be easier to lament because it cuts so close to home and it is such a picture of the brokenness of the sin of the world. But there are other things that are not as they should be. There are other things that do we take the time to remember them and to lament. And this isn't to get lost in depression. This isn't to become a melancholy person who only sees that which brings them sorrow. No, it's to honor the thing that has been lost. To honor the thing that should be grieved by doing just that. Grieving it. A healthy grief. Not a grief without hope. But grief. So shifting gears, this may not be true for everyone in the room, but it's true for some. Financially, these past three years particularly have been very difficult financially in the marketplace, in the stock market, across the board. Things have been lost. I read an article yesterday about uh, retirement accounts being destroyed and devastated by this last recession, uh, particularly among uh, Gen X and elder millennials. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Sometimes we feel like we'd like him to sell a couple for us. He has given us everything that we have. But let's take a moment and lament maybe the sense of security that has been lost 
or the sense of freedom that has been lost because of financial difficulties. Let's just take another moment. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet as well as jewelry, who put gold jewelry on your clothes. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Here's the homework assignment. Take a look at this lament in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And then think about something you're lamenting. Maybe it's something that's happened at work. Maybe it's the loss of a friend or family member. Maybe it's something completely different that I haven't touched on this morning. Take a moment, pick up a pen, and write a lament. Write a lament that acknowledges the beauty of that thing that has been lost and also recognizes the pain that losing it has caused. And then as we heard, as Mike read for us for Psalm 130, I suggest then you turn that lament to praise because we do not grieve as those without hope. But I also want us to not be those who don't grieve. Grieving is healthy and it helps us recognize the beauty of our hope that much more. So on this Father's Day Sunday, I encourage you to lament. Lament. Weep for that which is lost, because God intends for us beauty beyond that which we can imagine. And each of these pains, small and large, are pictures, reminders of that which God will one day restore. We are people of the book. We are people of the cross. The cross, the gospel, doesn't come without suffering, but through it comes amazing hope. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for all the things you have done for us, through us, and in spite of us. We acknowledge that we ache as we live in a fallen world surrounded by fallen people under attack by a fallen angel, that things are not now as they should be. But we thank you for the promise of your word, that your son will return. And in that day, we will begin to see and continue to grow in our understanding of what beauty truly is. You are the God who saves You are the God who provides. You are the God of all comfort. Comfort us in our lament. Point us to your Son. Guide us by your Spirit. Amen. Let us stand together.